that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, spending the day with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. Just two of us today, so it's going to be a real fun one. We've got a guest that I've known for a good long while. So, Pat, welcome back. Good to spend a little time together. Is it really? <laughs> I knew you were going to say something that horrible. No, I was negative. Like, it's not negative. We had like a 20-minute pregame conversation. John said to me, then, are you ready? And I said, what does ready really mean? Are we ever really ready? What defines ready? I know. I, it, it, I need deep. a much more specific code for you when I'm going to start recording. I said, Pat, may I start recording? Something no, like I mean, that. it's just like I, I, these things, they're like tumbleweed in the desert of my mind, and they just kind of blow around. <laughs> like, what is ready? Are we ever really ready? What is ready? Are you ready? Am I ready? You know, it's funny you say that a lot lately. I've been thinking about this idea like, when do you accept adulthood uh, at 38 years old? Obviously, I'm far beyond adolescence and whatever this extended adolescence we've created in modern society is. But I think the day that you realize that time is sort of um, arbitrary, right? Like you're never going to catch up with your to-do list and stuff's going to keep adding on. And You're you, never going to read all the books. You're never going to. I, I thought that. Gonna, yeah. I thought that yesterday. I bought a book. And I, it came, and I'm, you know, it's I'm backed up on this list, and Nicole yells at me constantly, and you know I buy books like crazy, and it dawned on me that I'm waiting for this day when I'm going to sit with all my books and read them, and that's never going to happen. And it was sort of like, kind of, it shook me a little bit, you know. I thought to myself, that's that's why the medieval world had monasteries. <laughs> You're absolutely right. So you get up one day, you said, I'm sick of my wife and my kids. <laughs> and I'm going to I'm going to tell them I'm going to leave them all. They got plenty of money because I'm like the Duke of somewhere. I'm I'm going to leave them all because they're all annoying. And I'm going to go join a monastery and I'm just right, going to read. I'm going to read off a of vellum. You got the excuse that God's calling you there. So even better. God told me, get out of here fast. dear. I got to go. <laughs> You're going to be fine. You and the kids. And they just went to or they went, you know, they went on a crew. Maybe they read on the crusades. Like I just I mean, before you got to battle, I mean. Didn't it take like forever to get there? Yeah. Oh gosh. Like months and stuff. So maybe you got to. Yeah. Sure. So you brought your vellum all your vellum all wrapped up, and you read like you know, you know Canterbury Tales. Yeah, the, can- the Canterbury Tales. That's like they knew this just came out. Who do you think? <laughs> <Right>. it- <laughs> it's so <laughs> true. Yeah. The publicist for the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> the old publicist. Read it on your own crusade. The Canterbury Tale. Your own Read pilgrimage. On your own I crusade. guess. <laughs> you know, speaking of pilgrimages, I was reading an article yesterday. About, I think it's called the Via Frangicana or something like that. Yes, it, yes. Romano Prodi wanted to bring it back. Yeah. But instead, he decided to put his time into the euro and destroy Italy's economy. <laughs> he should have stuck with the medieval because he, want, he wanted to bring that back so it could be Italy's um, Santiago de Compostela. Yeah. And apparently, people are actually doing it now. It's the pilgrim route from Canterbury in Britain to Rome and then actually beyond to, I guess, Bari or Brindisi somewhere in Puglia, which would lead to ships for the Holy Land, but it's like one of the longest Catholic pilgrimages in the world, and people have somehow in the past like 20, 30 years, I guess Prodi and the government probably put some attention to it, but even though the route has not been completely restored, people have been sort it's of... It's Italy. The route will never be restored. No, it'll never be restored. It'll but take people, 30 people years of restoration. It. Yeah, well, you know, the Cilento has one as well. Really? Yeah, it goes from, I think, Rossano and Calabria all the way to Sacramento de Novi Velia, my place that the Italo-Greek monks used to travel. It's called the Via San Nilo, which was the Santiago de Compostela of the south of Italy. I, see, I would love to do one of these. Heck, John, we should go from Canterbury. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, sure. Tell Nicole, sorry, Nicole. Got to go to Canterbury. <laughs> and I'm going to write my own Canterbury tale. You could write your own Canterbury tale. Why don't we bring the whole podcast crew like Canterbury Tales, and then we'll just film it, and then it's work. What kind of pilgrimage would that be? And it'd be the 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 via gluttony. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing says pilgrimage like five meals a day. You walk a mile, <laughs> then the next yeah. meal. In yeah. questo paese la specialità, they'd have some kind of special. <laughs> then they would tell you that the special sausage they make was a medieval sausage that they served. The Italian one would take years and years. I, you know, you're right though. 
you and I could put together a great route with all of the different stuff we ate across. And I'm sure we'd be searching out like anthropological foods, too. Then we would walk a mile and then we'd get a car. <laughs> That's absolutely Because you'd be digesting from the 18 courses. You know I love to go to pilgrimages. We've never done anywhere where let's say, exerting ourselves with, you know, a hike and stuff like that. I mean, I wouldn't mind the walking at all. You know, I love to walk. I wouldn't mind walking Compostela. The problem is walking a pilgrimage with 18 courses in your belly is kind of hard. Yes, yeah, not an easy task. But Italy would be like, ah, don't worry. The day after tomorrow you go, come back and eat. You know, we'd be there in the same restaurant for a week because every time it is true. you go to start to walk, you'd be at a digiri, you'd be tired, you'd have to sit down. You get in a conversation, yeah, conversation. They have different things you got to yeah, try. Yeah, coffee, it's gonna stay, you know, tomorrow, stay around. I'm yeah. going to show you our church from 973. That is what I love about it. Yeah, that's Italy. You know, you're going to have some. I would love to do. You know, there's a huge, ma- the big Marian shrine in France. I never say it right. Nicole would know. How do you say P-U-Y? Poo? Pew? Pew? You're asking the French. Wrong, yeah. Stephanie, you know French. How do you say that? Pew? Pui. Pui. Mm-hmm. Pardon. Pui. <laughs> Glad to a bit of assistance. Merci beaucoup. <laughs> Doria. Um, the big medieval pilgrimage site in France was Puy before the revolution. And it's not a pilgrimage site anymore? Well, it still is, but the revolution, they took down the statue, dragged it to the streets, and guillotined it. Oh, gosh. That's France being French. And <laughs> Lourdes is not that far away. So when the apparitions of Lourdes came, Puy never kind of got back to where it was. Sure. Yeah. I mean, they had a replica statue put in. They say it's the oldest Marian pilgrimage site in the world. Well, I would love to do that. We did Loretto, you and I, and Nick. And I did. Nick Fideli yeah, to the great. Fidelis whom I love with all my heart in Cleveland. Yeah, that was amazing. Yes, I'm very happy I, I went to Loretto. Yeah, me too. I have to really thank Nick because Nick, Nick pushed and pushed and pushed. Not that I didn't want to go. I really wanted to go. I just didn't. I thought time-wise it was just going to be very tight. I don't know how he pulled it off. He got us there and back. and Only Nick. Yeah. Uh, Nick can get more done in six hours, and I'll get done in six years. Yeah, talk about not being ready. Nick's always ready. I'm ne- I'm never ready. Yeah, he's going. Uh, yeah, that's that Cleveland. Uh, I guess Midwest. He's, he's, They're happy. Yeah. That's happy America. They're yeah, happy. happy. America. It's, it's New Jersey with happiness. You know, speaking of these pilgrimages, our guest today is somebody that I got to know in my time in D.C. And coincidentally, you know, as Pat and I are members of the Constantinian Order of St. George, our guest Tony Cancellosi is uh, he's here for all of his amazing accomplishments professionally and. He's the CEO of Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind. He's an amazing philanthropist, active Italian-American, but he's also a Knight of Malta. So he may actually have been on some of these pilgrimages we're talking about because I know he's a, a man of faith being in the Knights of Malta. So, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Have you done any of these pilgrimages? Have you done Malta's pilgrimages? Yes. The Knights of Malta, we have a an annual trip to Lourdes. And... Um, It's a very unique situation because we have people who have various disabilities and issues and so forth that we put together a plan to take them to Lourdes to go into the baths, which has been amazing for me. Um, Could you explain to people what that is? Because a lot of people out there will have no idea what Lourdes is or what the baths are. True. Okay. Well, Lourdes is is where the Blessed Mother appeared uh, to a young lady and basically said the world was going to change, go tell the world that I'm here. And she did. And people came to that spot and got healed. And so today it's a beautiful setting. And the water comes from the Pyrenees Mountains down into what I would call kind of the baths of Lourdes. And people go there to be put into the baths. And there's been many, many miracles, but it's a devoted to the Blessed Mother. And um, the Knights of Molda have embraced that. And so has thousands of other people. But it's just magnificent. Do you know how Lourdes proves that God kind of favors the Neapolitans? <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying to hear this. When the Virgin Mary appeared in Lourdes, she did not speak in French. She spoke in a minority language, Ossetan. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yes. Yes. So we know that the Virgin Mary probably prefers to speak Neapolitan. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Probably. Probably. I'm done. Have there been any Marian apparitions in the South? Of course there have been. Sure. Well, every single village in Italy has said they had one. But like that are major pilgrimage sites now? Well, they're sites, but I'm not sure if they're like considered major. 
Yeah. I mean, there's there's one here in the United States uh, in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah. You got to understand something. France got one shrine. We got a million. That's right. True. They could right. put all their juice behind one. That's right. true. Every town in Italy, Amarona came here. Amarona went there. Every, every town in Italy had a sick person that had an apparition. That's what I mean, every single one, every single it's South Carolina. It is true. In Campania, we have the most. So <laughs> you do the math. That's so it. True. I'm done. Tony, how many of those Malta trips have you done? Uh, three. And have you seen anybody really come out miraculously healed? Not that I've seen it, but I've heard it. Yeah. And because we take anywhere from 30 to 40 people over, and there has been, you know, a lot of stories of healing. Wow. And I think a lot of the healing in some cases is not just physical, yeah, but it's spiritual. Yeah, I could see that. It's a spiritual healing. I mean, it's something that you'll never forget in your life uh, to be immersed in, in the water that's coming down into your body that the Blessed Mother basically is there with you. Yeah, everybody that I've heard that's done it has had amazing things to say about the experience is transformative spiritually, like you say, and for many people physically. And it's interesting because you have a background in all different kinds of businesses. But for the past, what, 16 years, since 2005, you've been the CEO of the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind. Right. Services for those in need and those with disabilities has become your uh, raison d'etre, right? I mean, this is what you do mm-hmm. professionally. Like, yeah. I, I think of myself as a professional Italian American, so it, it's quite appropriate. Uh, John, you gotta put you, you gotta put that on a card. I should put that on my card. Yeah, John Viola, professional <laughs> Italian American. That's a great conversation. <laughs> All right, I should. You know, somebody I know, Italian American guy uh, who was a great mentor to me, a gentleman named Mike Zamparti. Pat, I know you know him. Yes. Tony, you might have met him down in D.C. He was at NIAF for a long time. Mm-hmm. Mike mentored me when I got out of college and you know, helped me look for jobs and stuff. And he told me when he graduated, he graduated with a bachelor's and a master's from Princeton and uh, tried to separate himself on his resume. So he you know, listed all of the accomplishments he had in school and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then he wrote Italian culinary expert. And he mm-hmm. said everybody that he interviewed with stopped and asked him, you know, what does this mean? And he said, well, you know, I grew up in the back of my grandparents' store, and I know good supresata, and I know good prosciutto. And he said it was like a real, real door opener for him to be listed as Italian Italian food expert or Italian culinary expert, something like that. So maybe maybe that's what I need on my card. Nick Fideli quoted as the buona forchetta. The buona forchetta is my favorite thing he ever said. Somebody <laughs> who's a good eater, a buona forchetta. And he's absolutely right. I use it all the time now. Yeah, I didn't have lunch, guys. I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I was building up to this podcast here. I didn't eat lunch yet, so... You're making me. I know you do wonderful work for the blind. We're never going to get to it. <laughs> We're talking about food. It's, it's an Italian comic. We'll talk about food. Oh, yeah. By the way, Tony Wilkes with the blind. Okay. Thank you very much. That'll be the end. But that's what makes us an Italian American podcast. If you went NPR, they'd already be very deep questions. No one would interrupt. <laughs> so, so Tony, tell us the work you do with the visually impaired. I mean, that, but that's not us. You know, in the old days when we did this in person, we ate. Yeah, it was better. Yeah, it was the best. That was the, we'd have food out, we'd have wine. We definitely imbibed. Tony, let me ask you: How did you get into this work, working with the with the visually impaired, with the blind? Uh, well, it started a long time ago when I was the CEO of an organization where I was asked to be on the National Disabilities Commission to work with Vietnam veterans. That's a long time ago, and so I got involved and. Uh, Went up to New York, was part of that um, national organization and got really interested in how people with disabilities suffer so much later in life because they don't have the ability to get better, but to be cured internally. And the internal side of it was that fascinated me the most is that you might not be able to fix the physical side but if you could help them with the internal side. And for years, I worked uh, with that at a national level. In fact, I'm looking at a picture with George Bush, who came one year and meet with a guy named Jerry Milbank and I, and uh, promoting the fact of people with disabilities have rights also. And that's a long time ago. And so my interest with people with disabilities continued and people recognized 
at a corporal level that I would support people with disabilities and hire people with disabilities. That gave me the, I think the desire to say, I am lucky. I have my ability to walk, run, see. But those who do not have that, how do they live internally? How do they live with that day to day? And so I made it a mission to wherever I was going to do in life and business, it was to help people with disabilities. So that started me then and later on, I became chairman of the board of a very significant nonprofit working with children with autism and Down syndrome, got involved in that to support that effort. And then unfortunately, my dad was dying of cancer And I remember the minute, the hour when he passed away, uh, because I was there with him, but he was accepting that he had cancer, but when he lost his sight, that changed his willingness to be there. Wow. And he passed away. And so ironically, being chairman of this other organization, one day they won a very large contract and, and I'm being chairman of the board, they asked me to make a speech because they were giving a contract to the Columbia Lighthouse for the blind. Hmm. And at the time I was the CEO of a startup company, I actually went public, Sylvan Learning. I was one of the founders of Sylvan Learning. And um, I said, gee, this is a great organization. And, and it touched my heart that my dad lost everything that he could think of when he lost his sight and what, how much that meant to him. And it meant to me too. And so six months later, a friend of mine said, hey, listen, Columbia Lighthouse is looking for a CEO. Are you interested? I said, sure. Wow. It was the hardest interview I've ever had in my life. Because, you know, here I am, you know, being a corporate guy and now focusing in on helping people like that. And I said, this is my calling. And that's how it happened. You really do think of it as a calling, right? I mean, that that's, you could see it in, in the conversation with you and knowing you, it's a vocation. Well, it's also, if you believe in miracles, it's like when my wife and I were on vacation and we went to the Holy Land and we were in Bethlehem and I was sitting and going up to say a prayer at this altar. And behind me, I turned around and there was a man who was blind. And I went, whoa, I work for the Columbia Lighthouse. And he's right behind me. Then when we went on to Greece, I ran into uh, this Greek Orthodox priest who was blind. Wow. So along the way, and we talk about lords and miracles, there are miracles that happen to us that we don't say they're miracles, but they're spiritual encounters. Yeah. And that is what I experience all the time. Not that I'm special. That I think we all experience those little things that encourage us to do what we have to do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, people call them fate or God winks or whatever. You know, I think in the modern hustle and bustle, we're so closed off to the kind of little nudges of spirituality, of uh, fate, whatever you want to call it. But it's out there. I mean, you know, it is. Pat and I talk constantly about how we became friends and, you know, the coincidences of meeting and really just random, random circumstances that that bring people together and then the things that we uh, became friends over and and talked about and and ended up participating in like the Constantinian order you know we never in a million years would have assumed this stuff would have happened but it it does kind of happen if you're open and and listening because if you think about it in fact I'm sponsoring an individual into the Catholic Church and we were talking about this last night and one of the things that we came up with is we become friends but we're also disciples to each other sure and so that that discipleship takes us to the path that we have to be on yeah i couldn't agree more you know i'm looking out my window at brooklyn here because we're still recording at home you're really Uh, looking at jersey no 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 i'm in the other side of the house i'm looking (laughs) i bet no i'll tell people i've been in that house he has the most beautiful view you love my view because it's jersey yeah, because you look right over Manhattan and you see Jersey. It's like, 
So I just want to make sure. All right. I'm, I just want to make sure I'm in, you're not. I'm in my little you, you, yeah, closet right. office. I'm looking out at, at Brooklyn, <laughs> Brooklyn Heights. But, but the best views in your house are of New Jersey. Let's be honest. That's why I love Pat. Come on. You could say it. They're not going <laughs> to rip away your Williamsburg passport. And you could see the Brooklyn Bridge. You could see downtown Manhattan. You could see the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island. And Pat just looks right past them and looks right out to New Jersey every All time right. he, he comes. I can see the former hospital where I was born. How about that? That is really crazy. I, I probably, if I had, you know, if I could put the direction and had a binoculars, I could probably see North Arlington, really, where you are right now. I could shoot rockets up and you could know yeah. I'm there. Yeah, it's true. We should try, we should try that, that one day. That, this is Tony. Why well, you're never going to get the story out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I, but I was thinking about, I was thinking about the neighborhood. And uh, in my neighborhood, Sylvan Learning is is present. We have a Sylvan Learning Center here. we got a couple, actually, a couple around here. And, uh, you know, it's quite a, quite a significant company to tell us Tony how you got involved in starting that and what your your goals in education were did you go into it just as a, as a business person or as someone with you know aims in education at the time I worked for a company called control data which is a computer manufacturer and <clears throat> we sold supercomputers and then we got into the education market and we created a technology called play-doh which was self-learning using a computer and so in 1986, a couple of guys called me and said, hey, listen, we want to start a company to educate kids. And you know something about education, you know the Plato system, and we want to build centers around the country. You already done that. So why don't you come as a partner, investor? So in 1986, I started with them. We raised a whole bunch of money. Uh, we created the curriculum. We created the locations, and our motto was putting people into seats and getting them educated. And then we decided, hey, let's go public. And we decided to go public, and we had a very successful public offering. And having the experience of setting up training centers and education, that gave us, I think, that extra lift they needed. Yeah. And so it was a great experience, did quite well. And then I moved on. Yeah, I think that the, the the chains have come off thanks to technology around education, around the delivery of services. I mean, you know, all, all of this stuff. We were talking today before uh, we started the call about how you, you guys at the Lighthouse, you've been on the ground in your offices and in your centers since COVID broke out. You've, you never, never stopped, right, doors. because you're delivering services, right? Sure, sure. It's just amazing how, how, how many ways we can address these kind of things now. And, you know, it's funny. I'm thinking about the delivery of services. I, I do want to talk a little bit about what you guys do at the Lighthouse because this is a strange non sequitur to get there. But, you know, everybody in the audience that, that's listened for a long time knows my wife and I just had a baby girl a couple months ago. And I, I guess I'm learning now that new parenthood means anxiety probably for the rest of my life, which I was never a particularly anxious person. But every time the little baby squeaks, you think something's wrong. And <laughs> there was a period where she was sleeping through like loud noises. And of course my paranoid Sicilian brain was like, I think she's having hearing problems. Of course she, thank God is, is fine now. But I remember sitting down with Nicole one night and saying like, okay, if the baby's not hearing us, right, what do we do? And then, you know, you, you turn to the internet, which gives you just far too much information, all of this sort of WebMD insanity where you just, there's so much information out there. You have no idea what you're actually reading. Um, but I, I was thinking about that, you know, what, what do you do if this is, uh, in your life, if you have a child who's disabled or you have a family member, how does a child who maybe can't hear learn sign language? How did the parents learn? How did the blind find their path towards resources? You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where does this start? Where's the sort of entry point for a family in terms of knowing what resources are out there? And, and what do you guys do at Lighthouse for, for the blind? I can tell you, John, it starts from birth to death, basically. And our whole concept is we treat the whole person. We have what we call an early intervention program that we work with hospitals. I've been on the Providence Hospital Board for a long time. And so we are on alert if children are born blind. We work with that parent or the parents up to the age of three or four years old to help the parents adjust to that child not having sight. Wow. 
and that's very, very sad in the sense of knowing that they do not have sight, but we help them learn how to treat that child, but more importantly, how they need to be treated. It's not just the patient. Yeah. It's the caregiver. Yeah. And so we have created, you know, we're going to be 122 years old, uh, May 17th. Wow. And so we've developed internal skills and through innovation technologies to offer. One of our programs is called Foundation for Adjustment to Blindness. Because once you lose your sight, and if you've lost your sight after having sight and not born with it, you have some instincts of knowing what colors are and what trees look like. But now you've lost the skill of navigation, yeah. reading books, using technology. So we institute all that into the person. We show them technology. We show them skills, show them how to cook, how to travel on Metro, how to build confidence in themselves that if you don't have sight, you could still be independent. How has this all changed since you first started? What happened the changes that you've seen? The biggest changes is the technology and innovation that we've embraced and that we've instituted primarily with, you know, iPhones, special canes. We introduced a, a technology recently, uh, how people can travel on Metro. We automated 11 Metro stations here in Washington, D.C. for visually impaired and deaf blind people to travel using an iPhone and giving them that ability to travel, period. Wow. We're doing that again for children or adults that go to college, having technology to get them around the campus, getting them into curriculum. So what I've seen, Pat, is the fact that technology is evolving to the point to give people more confidence to be independent because there's technology that helps them. That's the big thing. And us being innovative in the sense of we own this application right now, and now we want to contract here in D.C. to do buses. So we're going to be implementing on buses a technology for when a person enters on that bus, have access to technology that they're going to know when the bus takes off, when the bus stops, where their stop is, and where they get off is what is there when they get there. Wow. So it's technology that has advanced itself to that level. Speaking of technology, what about medical technology? Because this is reveals how little I know about these kind of things. But, you know, as I was saying to Tony, when we were catching up, I get my news through a very careful calculus. I have my Apple News and I know what I subscribe to and I subscribe to things I agree with and don't agree with. And it's sort of this very um, perfect mix to make sure that I don't uh, go crazy in the morning and, and they can still get the news but you know you still get really random stuff popping up and sometimes they get stories of you know child cured of blindness sees mother for the first time watch the reaction video mm -hmm. you know I, I know there's been amazing things with implants for people who are uh, hearing impaired mm -hmm. where is the medical technology gone for the visually impaired well it, it's it was just an article in the new york papers believe it or not and i can send you the article uh, about an individual in England, they put a chip in their eye and the person could see. Holy cow. Yeah. Now that, you know, you, you got to really validate when you hear these kinds of things. From the standpoint of the medical side, if, if you dissect what causes blindness, you can determine how far you can go with medical technology and medical care. So if you look at the highest rates, there's 24 million people in the United States that are visually impaired and blind. 12 million of them are women, and then you can dissect it down there. When you start to look at diabetic retinopathy, which people with diabetes, that's the highest rate of blindness. If you are diagnosed with diabetic retinopathy, and if you let it go and you don't take care of it, you will go blind. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah, macular degeneration is for people who are aging, right? And there are now injections that you can get to slow down the blindness, right? Wow. So there's, there's a lot of medical things going on. But here's the problem. If you're not going to get regular eye exams, if you're not going to an ophthalmologist, and if you're not going to specialists, you will find yourself 
And we find it all the time because we have we have a we have our own clinic people come to to help people who are losing their sight. And Pat, to go to your thing about when we have people come to our clinic, we can give them adaptive devices, not just a magnifying glass, give them other devices, glasses and so forth and so on to help them see better. So it's a matter of you taking care of yourself by getting regular eye exams and, you know, it's like wear sunglasses, you know, don't smoke, you know, all these kinds of things that we take for granted that we don't think we're going to ever lose our vision, but it's something that you've got to be very aware of, of these other diseases, but there's a lot going on in the medical field of detection early, but there's still 24 million people in the United States that are visually impaired and blind. And I've got to imagine it's, I mean, not that it's ever easy, but I've got to imagine it's easier to be visually impaired in the United States than it is in a lot of other places, you know? Uh, yeah, there's 100 million other people in the world that are blind. Wow. That's unbelievable, really, when you think about that. Are those who were born blind, who've never seen, is it a different culture and a different community than those who became blind? Um, I know that deaf Americans, it's a very kind of very tight community especially those who were born unable to hear. Is it the same with the blind? Is there two worlds? Those who were born blind have a kind of a different worldview than those who became blind and it's kind of two separate works? Yes, it is. And, and I, I can tell you this past year, one of, our, one of our advisory board members, she was born blind and she would always tell me, Tony, I feel sorry for those who've lost their sight after they've seen because I've never seen, so I've lived with this. This is who I am, but other people, and, and I, I've got to be careful because I was a very famous person that I got to know very well. And he lost his sight when he was like 13 or 14 years old. And he tells the story that he was privileged in the sense that when he did lose his sight, his parents were able to help him gain all of the things I was talking about earlier you know, training programs, different kind of medications, different this and that, and technology. So people that are born blind, at least the one or two people that I know that have expressed it that way, feel that they are different than those who lose their sight later. Because 85% of the people that lose their sight after having sight are depressed and really need a lot of medical counseling. I can imagine that's a big part of it, you know, dealing with loss as opposed to being born without, you know, that that's uh, got to be a very, very different world. Um, speaking of sort of the, the trajectory of life, Tony, we haven't even talked about your upbringing and I don't know this question. D- did you grow up in DC? No, no. I grew up in South Philadelphia. Ah, uh, okay. are you up at Zays? My mother was from Sorrento. Really? My, yes. And my that, mother, what, that's where my grandmother's side's from. There were Sorrento people in Philly, but there wasn't a lot of them. Well, yeah, my grandfather and my mother were both from Sorrento and my grandmother. My father was from Palermo. All right. That's like my family. My father always told the story. Well, you know, I had to go see your grandpa. And I said, yeah. And he said he knew I was Sicilian. So that was a big problem. But I got through it because he brought his two brothers and his two sisters with him. (laughs) He tells that story. I had a curiosity because I have a Sicilian grandfather who married a Barre's grandmother. What year did your parents get married? Oh, gosh. Uh, 19, what? My father was born 1910, so he was 20 when he got married. 1930? Yeah, so my grandparents were married, I think, 1950-something. They were born, my grandfather was born 35, my grandmother was born 37. uh, And it was still an issue for my grandmother to be bringing home a Sicilian. Oh yeah. And that's amazing to me, you know, although I've told the story in the air before my dad's mom, who I was very close to, she was from Campania and she was terminally ill. And I went to her bedside and I was, you know, the oldest grandson and I grew up in the house with her. And, uh, I took a lot from my grandmother. She was the one who gave me my faith and, you know, she was like rock, rock solid confidence. I said to her, you know, grandma, how are you? She said, I'm good. I'm going to Jesus. I feel great. And I was sort of at peace. I'm like, wow, I can't believe how peaceful this is. But, you know, they had our pain medication. 
So she pulled me over and she said, I, I want to tell you one thing before I go. And I thought, oh, my gosh, am I going to be able to handle this? And she said, whatever you do, don't marry a Sicilian. I said, Grandma, my mom is Sicilian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mom's Sicilian. Her other son-in-law is Sicilian. And my uncle, who married a, what we would say is a Medigan lady from Louisiana, yeah, yeah, right. she was like one quarter Sicilian, too. So I couldn't believe in, you know, it was 2005, whatever. My grandmother was still holding to this. But you get a, get a lot of blowback for some reason. I don't know. Well, the way I grew up was that my grandfather, grandmother, my two aunts, my uncle, we all lived on the same street, Montrose Street, right by the Italian market. But I guess if you ever researched me, I did a um, profiles and success thing is that my father was a professional fighter. Really? Yes. And I was in what you might call golden gloves, but whatever. Uh, But anyway, my dad, uh, this quick story is that my wife is not Italian, and my wife is German-Dutch, beautiful woman, farm girl. They didn't want her to marry a Sicilian, but that was it, 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 it was the reverse psychology. You don't want to marry. Does this family speak English or just Italian? But anyway, wow. Wow. so my wife was uh, worked for a, uh, a general at the Marine Corps when we first got married in Philadelphia. And the general came by and, he's, and he said, oh, wow, Cancelosi, is that? Frankie Day, you know who Frankie Day is? My wife said, no. He said, well, you know, he was a middleweight boxer, pretty good boxer. And my wife said, no, 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 no. So Sunday dinner, my mother was serving and my dad was sitting there. And Lynn says, dad, do you know who Frankie Day is? He got up and left the table. And my mother said, we don't talk about that. And he, he, so he, he fought under the pseudonym Frankie Day. I didn't know. I was. Oh, you didn't know. Oh, wow. That's the best Italian Sunday when a family buried secret comes out. <laughs> That's exactly. fantastic. We all love those. Of course, they never told you, right? Because no. the goal of every Italian family is to lie to their children exactly. and not tell them the full story. <laughs> Had geography. Wow. Tony, I knew this was going to get good. Keep going. Well, no, what happened was that I. There's a, there were like 11 years difference between my sister and I. So I was like, you know, an afterthought, you know, so I was like, like five or six years old. My father and I just watched Friday night fights and my father was score the fights, you know. And then as I got older and, and I kept saying to him, I said, what is that big bag downstairs and that other thing that's hanging up? He said, well, that's a speed bag and that's a sandbag. You need to learn how to do that. You need to learn how to box. Can I ask you a question? Because we all have this. Why was you, the fact that your father a boxer such a state secret? You know, I guess maybe because I don't know. Because I have these things in my own family and people meltdown over the most things that today I'm like, well, why was that such a secret? Yeah. I'm attuned to like the things of the past, right? You know, children out of wedlock, alcoholism. Oh, people, sure. Yeah. All that stuff. I get that. But it was like, you know, well, I didn't talk to your uncle for six months because I don't know. Uh, he didn't give me a cup of coffee. And then. Oh, yeah, that's right. That, that, you're like, well, <laughs> why did you spend years burying this? Well, why did you need to know? But mom, was a cup of coffee. I get stupid. But, you know, that's what you people fight over. Well, no, I mean, and I, 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 I had yeah. so and the reason I'm interrupting, I have so many of them in my own family. And I'm like, I, I, I'll never understand why it was such a state. I don't either. I don't yeah. either. But I know one thing that when I was growing up, there was lots of secrets, you know, like, why is Aunt Lena outside? Oh, because she smokes. Oh, don't don't tell grandpa that she smokes, you know. I mean, it was like all these little secrets. And I said, why am I growing up with all these secrets, you know? Yeah, they love that. They love that. Some things were really should have been secrets and some things were complete, absolute nonsense. Oh, yeah. That's okay. <laughs> very true. People didn't talk over 20 years. Well, you know, he didn't he didn't shake. You know, he said hello to me after such and such at that wake. I'll never. Oh, yeah. Him. No, that's how and then you can't. And you can't hear that. Yeah. That's more secretive than like the nuclear football. The code's in there. You, you can't hear that. I know. I know. But I'll tell you, the one thing that it did do for me, it made me feel somewhat out of it, not knowing it. But maybe I didn't have to know it. But I did get to know it later. And maybe that's what happens in Italian families. Yeah. There's a lot of um, editing post-fact in the Italian family, you know. that this We're, ha- we're high geographers. Yeah, we are. We are hot geographers. We edit stuff to the fact the way we like it said, and then that becomes the standard. Tony, you boxed yourself? Yeah, not well. <laughs> not, not well, no. <laughs> I, my father always says, 
one of the greatest life lessons he ever got. Because my father grew up, you know, in a really poor neighborhood, and uh, he boxed in the PAL, and then he eventually boxed at West Point. And he says one of the greatest life lessons he ever got is at some point it dawned on him that the you know the ring man or whoever was his coach, whatever, was yelling at him like, "Get back out there! Get back out there! You got to do this." And he and it dawned on him that sometimes you're the guy in there getting your head pounded in. And nobody's going to understand. Like, they could, they could give you encouragement. They could send you out. They can give you strategy. But sometimes you're just going to be the guy who's getting his head pounded. And he said that was a big life lesson for him. And I, I, I can get that through his lessons to me. You know, sometimes sometimes taking a few shots in the head okay. uh, gives you a different perspective, I suppose. So so I, I guess in any way that they come, the struggles of the generations before still teach us, you know. The one thing you mentioned about your grandma is that, when I was growing up, my mom worked and my grandmother would come over and take care of me. And we only spoke Italian because she only spoke Italian, but she would never come through the front door. It would always come through the back door. And I would be waiting for her by the back door because I knew she would be there. And what I learned from Philomena was her name was Philomena. What I learned from her was the love that she gave was just enormous you know and she didn't have to say anything you knew she loved you yeah you know and that was that was family that was family and that to me i always say when we talk about this stuff with guests or when we talk about in, in just our life i always think that that's kind of the secret sauce to being italian american is that that idea that this like quiet strength and love that is transferred to you you, you know it's, it's a safety net for when you go out into the world and and have to take risks knowing that you always have that to fall back on, you know, like that really pure love that you experience in family and the extended family in particular, because there's so many sources for it. It just, for me, it makes me feel very secure going out and risking, you know, because Mm -hmm. what is failure? If you go back to that, you'd kill to go back to waiting at that back door, let alone, you know, if it was the only alternative. So yeah, I think that's a big part of what makes us who we are. Sure. Well, Tony, let me ask you a question. Do you think that there's aspects of your job you might do in a certain way or that you do differently because you're Italian-American? I was going to say something about that, and that might lead into your, the answer to your question. I have a granddaughter who's just turned 12, and we tell her and she tells us how much she loves us. The word love was always in our vocabulary, whether it was in Italian or English. And that transfers into who we are today of love your neighbor like you love yourself. It's one of the great commandments that, you know, we don't use enough sharing of how much we love each other. You know, it's like having good friends. Do you tell your friends how much you love them? You do. Years ago, people wouldn't say that word. What are you, you know, are you telling somebody you love them? What are you kidding me? But that's how I grew up. I mean, it was always, I love you. Yeah. And that gives you the encouragement of who you are and how they can build confidence in you that you're a good person. I think that's a very important, actually. I, I say that all the time. Like, I grew up, my family was very loving and very comfortable with that, you know, telling our grandparents we loved them, them telling us our parents. And, you know, I lived in a town that was not particularly Italian. We were kind of the only Italians out there. And I remember a lot of friends coming over and, commenting on how you know affectionate we were physically with our family and my dad would hug us and kiss us and you know, rub our heads and, and I had friends who shook their dad's hands from a very young age and I, you know yeah I never understood that that was very outside my wheelhouse and I think it's a huge part of who I am and I try to pass that same affection and love on as much as I can that that's kind of yeah I, I so yeah. I, I it's so nice to hear that confirmed in, in your story and I think it was We've passed that on to our kids, and it's like I can text my granddaughter, and I, I'll send a big heart, and she'll come back and say, love you more. Ah, no better feeling than that. I know. I mean, it's like, I love you, Callie. Her name's Callie Lynn after my wife. I love you, Callie. I love you more, granddad. I mean, that says something to you. Yeah. That she really realizes what love is. Well, it certainly seems to me like the whole idea of modeling love, of 
coming from love as a source of your vocation of bringing love into everything you do that that obviously impacts your decisions and your behaviors in your professional career that's obvious yeah i hope so i hope so i think that for me being here since 2005 i think we have a very strong internal culture of people that are here because they want to help others if you look at our staff our clinical staff you look at our our contract side we won a major contract this past year we won a 15 million dollar five-year contract and we employed 24 visually impaired and blind individuals out of 34 wow and to see them come to work every day in fact we're a secure facility here we do top secret work uh, besides the clinical stuff and all the other stuff we do and uh, this facility here is a secured facility so we implanted this big contract here in our building and you see them come to work every day with their canes walking through the lobby walking through the street and everybody's going what are all these blind people doing here you know well they're working why is it secretive so secretive um because it's a government agency that that um we can't let you know what we're doing with it what we're doing so it's do you want me to (laughs) <laughs> so that's all he could tell you. <laughs> can I say that? Can I ask this much? But it's for the blind. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. These are contracts. We have right now probably about a $30 million backlog of government contracts. 75% of our employees are visually impaired and 75% are on our government contracts. That's pretty amazing. We think about it. It's good to see government resources going to good use. I mean, gosh, that that that's wonderful to see organizations like yours getting that kind of support. And and you know that's the that's the way that a lot of these things get done. The kind of public private partnership and the the investment that can be made and in, sure. in people doing things in in a in a good way and uh, in a professional way. So that that's really um, it's wonderful to have this conversation because I've known you you know in social circles through my time in D.C. but never mm-hmm. at this depth of detail so sure. i'm very uh, happy to get to know you even better and i have one final question before we go and this is really a, a a layup to my partner in crime over here your grandparents were from sorrento and you spoke italian with them in the house did you speak neapolitan yes of course he did what a silly question well why is it a silly Cause, question because because the neapolitan language probably survives better in sorrento than anywhere else and i'll tell you why because we had enough of money and enough of self-esteem that we didn't feel like second-class citizens. <laughs> the, the, poor, the poorer that people feel, the more they feel that a minority language is an impediment to, to upward mobility. That's very true. Well, I guess the question I should have phrased is, can you still speak Neapolitan? Oh, no. Mm-mm. You could curse. I can guarantee you could curse in Neapolitan. <laughs> I think if we went off a line and I said, yeah. did, you, did you grandma say this when you got in trouble? I'm sure you'd say, I, yeah, I remember. <laughs> but but the, the, yeah. the cursing of Campania is beyond X-rated. Yeah. It would make the Oscans yeah. blush. We're, we're a we're a people that have liberal use of cursing in an anatom- anatomically sensitive way. Yes, sensitive way. Well, I'll take. Could I tell before you go? Can I tell you a quick story? Yes. Yeah. Short. Well, my uncle Joe, Uncle Josie, I uh, was about fifteen years old, and he says. Um, Grandpa wants to go back to Sorrento. Does that sound familiar, that song, Go Back to Sorrento? Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, and I said, really? He said, yeah, he wants to go back. You know, my grandmom had passed away and all this. And, and he's going to go on the Leonardo da Vinci out of New York City. And, and I don't know how I got selected. He said, we want you to come with me and drop Grandpa off. So three months later, my uncle says to me, Grandpa doesn't want to come back. <laughs> so my grandfather did not want to come back. Wow. He met his cousins and met a woman, you know, and, and always it's always a woman, you know. <laughs> and, and so so my uncle had to go over and get him. He was like in his wow. 80s. He lived to be 97, 98. God bless him. Yeah, but I mean, it was like you go back to Sorrento, you don't want to come back. I mean, can you blame him? No. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> I wouldn't want to leave either. That's true. I remember my grandfather went for the last time 
uh, to Italy when I was a kid, and he was really sick. And I was young enough, old enough to know that he was too sick to travel and young enough to still be, like, kind of naive enough to ask him about it. And I said, like, Grandpa, what if you die in Italy? And he was like, it wouldn't bother me to die in Italy or I I would be fine with dying in Italy. And I, I didn't realize then as a kid that was his home, you know. It was his, his, his homeland. So I, it, it's it's hard to come back even for us, let alone for those. But, but Tony, Tony, remember this. Our ancestry is from the Beverly Hills of Italy. Right. <laughs> Right. How many movies? How many songs? Oh, I know. <laughs> it's, it's a very small place. People falling out of windows. I'm, you know, I'm very with... high achieving. Sorrento, you, you can't get any higher. We, that's the max out. I am. I, I, I'm very proud of it. So, uh, have you ever done the DNA kits? Yes, I'm 88 percent Italian. I'd, I'd love to find out if you're related to Pat. He's like everybody he meets who's got heritage in any of the places he's from. Somehow he finds out they're related. He's got more. But see, that that's why I think that there's people on the other side pulling the strings because there's just too many coincidences. I can look it up, Pat, and send it to you. Yeah, absolutely. You have my number, John? I'll give it to you. Well, needless to say, I would be thrilled to find out that you were related to Pat and one of his okay. many uh, DNA test cousins. That would be amazing. So everybody goes, ha, ha. That's another paddle. What's my rockets? The rocket, the moon. People go, ha, ha, he, he. But I put so much time into DNA research. You do. Yeah, you do. And I really do. I found out so many. I mean. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Everybody has a story. You just got to. Everyone listening here has stories equal to mine. The difference is you just didn't put the time into researching. Them. If you want all these awesome stories, put the time in. Yeah. yeah that's, that's they what all start to for. pop up. Yeah. That's we're here to give you that fire. <laughs> yes, we are. That's why. Burn, we're baby, burn. Yeah. Burn. burn, baby, burn. Well, Tony, thank you for adding kindling to that fire today with great conversation and a lot of love and a lot of warmth. And it's been a real pleasure. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. I look forward to coming down and seeing you in D.C. And anybody else who wants to support the Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind, take a look at their website. It's a really great cause being led by an Italian-American with a lot of passion and a lot of love to give. So we hope you've enjoyed this conversation as we catch up with Tony. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Ah,